Uh, I cried during dedication, baby dedications, but I've never actually uh, lost it during a, a... That was really cool. That was really special. I'm a father of three kids to see that. That's really special. The kind of interesting twist here is I actually know Andrea's sister. Uh, we were uh, the same time went through college in the mid-1920s, and... <laughs> I actually was on a summer, they called them summer training programs with the Navigators out in Colorado Springs with, with Janet. And so to think, in 1984, that 22 years later, uh, I'd be baptizing her sister and the most emotional uh, baptism I've ever experienced is really kind of a cool, a cool thing. So anyway, if you're new to us here at Hope, we are in the middle or beginning phases of a... Uh, study of the gospel of John. And uh, you may think we're going, you know, relatively slow, but man, we did 26 verses last week. I feel bad for Chris. It's very, I'm going to be gone, Chris. Take 26 verses. Uh, sorry about that. But last week we uh, were in John chapter 4, and I encourage you to open up your Bible to John chapter 4. There isn't an insert this week. Um, part that's just because I have a little bit too much information to fit on one of those things. And and we've decided that there's only so many points you can go down, and then it's just meaningless anyway. So there isn't one. This You can follow the screen, or you can read it, your Bible, or open your Bible. There's a little booklet, too, the Gospel of John, inside the, inside the pew there somewhere there should be. And if you don't have a Bible, or you don't have a Gospel of John, or you just want to catch up what we've been doing, you're free to take one of those and just read that, that great book of the Bible, the Gospel of John. We started last week with John chapter 4, uh, and it's the, it's the account of what is often called the woman at the well. And so I want to reread this account just because you have to kind of reread it so you understand the setting of what's even going on. So let me just reread it, make a couple comments, and we'll just kind of get caught up to speed. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's two o'clock in the afternoon. Let me tell you, if you've been anywhere where it's a hot culture, two o'clock, Hoo, ha, ha. I was in Thailand, Dave just came from India, 2 o'clock, you know why the Mexicans have, uh, what do they call it, uh, siesta, this is siesta time, I, I was in Thailand and, and it was 104 degrees and he, the guy literally looked at me and said, aren't you glad you didn't come during the hot season, <laughs> whoa, okay, so he's hot, it's a journey, he's tired, he sits down. Verse 7, Then a Samar when a Samaritan woman came to drink water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Now in that little parenthetically here, his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. So Jesus is by himself, disciples go and buy food into the town, he's sitting by this well. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman, how can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, it, it, it really is true. They don't associate. There, there's a tension there. If you, if you want to think of it, I, you know, I don't know if you've ever been at a, at a game over there at the Metrodome. Uh, maybe it's a gopher game. Uh, that'd be a great example. Let's say it's a gopher game. You're over there, and you're maybe not intent, very wise, but you're rooting for the gophers to win a football game. 
And they happen to be playing the Badgers. Anybody ever been there when they play the Badgers? Is that annoying or what? Those of you from Wisconsin, you can just not answer that question. Because there's more red in that stadium that weekend than there is maroon and gold. So you're walking around, you go and you see you're going to go get a corn dog or something, and you, you, the person next to you is wearing red. Wisconsin, it says on you. Ugh, that's just annoying, right? I'm not going to... I saw that. There is no cheering for Wisconsin. You go back to your... Across the Iron Curtain there. Okay, but just, there's this tension, right? There's this tension when you see someone with an opposite jersey of, at least at that moment, all right? I know, granted, a game isn't all that important, but it feels a little weird when you're around someone with the other jersey on. We went to a, a baseball game in Chicago with the White Sox, and we were Twins fans. It was 13 to 1 Chicago, so, you know, no big deal. No one threatened us. But it was a little bit like, hmm, you better watch yourself here. That's the tension. Jesus is not on his home turf. He's there in Samaria, and there's this tension going on. Jesus asks her for a drink. She says, she neglects the drink, which is, this, this is such an amazing conversation, because they say this, and the other person says something completely different. Then Jesus does the same thing, comes to something different. She comes to something, it's the weirdest conversation. Listen, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you life-giving water. We're not talking about water here anymore. He was talking about water. She's talking about nationalism. He's then talking about spiritual matters. Verse 11, Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this life-giving water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? So she's thinking back on water. He says, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's talking spiritual water now. She says, sir, give me some of this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, there's a certain point in a conversation where you're talking about two things that if you're a wise conversationalist, you just say, I'm going to change the subject. Jesus does. What does he say? Go get your husband. Right? That's the next verse. Why don't you go get your husband? <laughs> the, the, just, the conversation's going all over the place. So, he says, go call your husband and come back. She says, at least they're on the same plane here, I have no husband. Jesus says back to him, you're right when you say you have no husband. That'd be a weird thing for someone to say to you. You know, what are you, a stalker or something? You know, I mean, <laughs> yes, I am speaking truth. You just asked me a question, I answered it. The fact is, you have had five husbands. And the man you are now, you have now, excuse me, now have, is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Now, do you get that? She's had five husbands. We don't know why exactly. She's either been divorced or widowed five different times. And now she's living with a guy and Jesus compliments her on her honesty. This is getting weirder all the time, right? Okay, this is some weird conversation thing. Jesus is out to make a point. He wants to make a point. And she says, sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Huh? Quicko change old subjecto, right? The only thing I want to go to the living with situation, let's talk about where to worship. Jesus then answers, verse 21, go to the next one. There is, yeah, there was a, Jesus declared, believe me, woman. By the way, again, that's not woman. That's just 
Believe me, female person. There's no good way to translate that. It doesn't, it's not derogatory. Believe me, female person of the opposite gender, a time is coming <laughs> when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you, what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming I love this phrase. And has now come, remember John likes that phrase, Jesus likes that phrase, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Not about location, it's about the attitude of your heart. You worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of the worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. It's not about denomination. It's not, I don't care if you don't go to church. It doesn't matter. It's about spirit and truth. Not about geography. Not about association. It's about your heart. Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared. And you just got to see the picture of Jesus sitting there or standing there. He's giddy at this point. Because this conversation has went exactly where he meant to lead it masterfully he says I who speak to you am he isn't that great wow what a conversation I, he basically gets her to, to give him an opportunity to say I'm the Messiah I'm the Christ I, I wanted to ask you for a drink and we're now on the point that that's quite a conversation turner isn't it give me a drink I'm the Messiah and it only took 26 verses Jesus is a master of that. Now, that was last week. Chris did a great job talking about, are you thirsty? And that's the whole point there. Are you thirsty? Are you thirsty for Christ? The next two weeks, we're going to, we're going to see two different groups of people react to this. What Jesus and this woman talk about. There's two different reactions that are going to happen. One from the disciples, which always amazes me. They're more clueless on this. And then one from the Wisconsin Badger fans, the, the Samaritans. And they get it. And they're, they're excited. We're going to look at that next week. Cor's going to open that up for you next week uh, because I have a date with a walleye. It's in my contract, every opener fishing. Anyway, beside the point. Um, <laughs> this week we want to look at the disciples, their reaction. So let's take a look at this. Verse 27. Just then, so they're in the middle of this conversation. He just says, I am the Christ. Ah, he's just, I can just see him. He's just thrilled to be able to say this. Just then, his disciples returned from town where they're getting food. Uh, Jesus probably sent them. They're surprised to find him talking to a woman, female person of the opposite gender. But no one asked, what do you want to the woman? What do you want? That's probably the way it would say, well, what do you want? Or to Jesus, why are you talking with her? Now, I know the Bible is ripped on for, um, sometimes for its view of women. You've got to understand that in its context, John 4 is radical. John 4 is radical that Jesus would have a conversation in that culture with a woman. Second century rabbi by the name of, oh, I love this name. I'm going to name one of my kids this. Yashai Yo Yosai ben Yohanan. Mm, it's a great. Here's what he said. He said, prolong not conversation with a woman. Now, the person who was writing down what this wise rabbi said in the second century, ed uh, the, the editor or whatever, here's what he said. 
He adds this, that is to say, there is to be no conversation, presumably in public, even with one's own wife. Hence the wise men say, he who prolongs conversation with a woman brings evil upon himself, ceases from the words of the law, and at last inherits a Gehenna, which is hell. <laughs> wow. That's a really bad view of marriage, where he says, don't even bother really talking to your wife, especially in public. Huh? And Jesus is having this conversation. Granted, it's a little bit all over there. She's this, this opposite, this Samaritan, who is someone that Jews don't get along with for a lot of reasons. Chris went into them last week. This is the view of women that was culturally known. So for Jesus to be in that conversation, you've got you to put it in its historical context how radical that was. Verse 31. Oh, sorry, 28, excuse me. Then, so the disciples come, there's this awkward silence. Nobody says anything. They're thinking things, but no one asks it. Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people. What do you notice that's interesting in that sentence? She what? She leaves her water jar. It's 2 o'clock in the afternoon in, in Thailand. It's 147,000 degrees. It is hot. She came there to get water. She leaves without the water jar. She gets it. There's something way more important. She understands this concept of living water. Whoa, this guy is the Christ. It's more important than my mouth is stuck, or excuse me, my tongue is stuck to the top of my mouth right now. I don't care. This is too cool. She went back and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Obviously, a little bit of an embellishment there, but I mean a lot of it. Could this be the Christ? Now, she goes and gets them. They came out of the town and made their way towards him. So they're coming back to see him. A little foretaste of what next week's going to look like. This conversation with these people. They're going to be way different than the disciples. Let's go back to the disciples. Verse 31. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. So the, we're not going to, it's kind of like a dysfunctional family. We're just not, not going to talk about this whole woman thing here. Just the no talk rule, you know? No, I'm not going to do it. Why don't you eat something? We went and got corn dogs here. Why don't we eat those? Uh, we'll just forget the woman thing completely. But he said to them, Jesus, again, being the master teacher that he is, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. You got to love the disciples because they just, they just take that thing hook, line, and sinker. Then his disciples said, could someone have brought him food? Right? Isn't that great? I mean, Jesus is just sitting there going, oh my gosh, you are just as confused as the lady. So, I mean, and you guys have been with me for a while. Okay. He says then, my food, says, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me, the will of him who sent me, and to finish his work. Jesus had work to do. Sitting at the, on, by that well with that woman was part of it. When he sat there and he engaged in this conversation where he led her through to the point where he got to say to her, I am the Christ, fed him, certainly not physically, but fed him emotionally and spiritually in such a way that he was full. I, I think Jesus was giddy at that point. He's like, oh, you guys don't understand, I'm full. 
I'm completely full. I don't need food. Then he says to them these words. Do not say four months more and then the harvest. It probably was a, a phrase that people said. Four months more and then the harvest. A popular phrase, okay? Four months more and then the harvest. Jesus says, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life. So that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. He says, I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work. And you have and will reap the benefits of their labor. He says, you just missed a great opportunity. This woman right here, she had no clue who I am. And you're more interested in cheeseburgers than you are in this woman. He says, don't you know? Look at, look at the fields. They're white with people who don't know about me yet. It's the best thing they could know. It's better than water. It's better than food. When I uh, was a freshman in college, um, uh, I, I, like I've, I've told you before, I, I got involved in a Bible study. Uh, I don't know how in the world that happened. One of the things that I went to, uh, the third week instead of having Bible study, we went to this ice cream social, and I thought it was kind of corny. And I remember going into uh, this room, now which is Christians in Action Church. At that time it was some restaurant or something. And I remember walking in there and seeing a bunch of people, didn't know them, but I saw one girl who was kind of cute and was a girl had in a calculus class who had befriended me, who was nice to me. And the first thought I had was, oh, normal people are here. All right? Normal people who talk normally are here. Now, she didn't know that without seeing her, I would have had this, I don't know if I even want to be here, but seeing her, I was at ease. What she did by befriending me was a way that she accomplished some of this in a small way. Knew where I was at, knew that I was worse off than the Samaritan woman, and yet befriended me in class. As a result, I stayed at that meeting, heard the message of Christ, and uh, 12 hours later decided to become a follower of Christ. Now, there's a ton of little pieces that fit in there. The question is, is that the way you and I look at people? Do we look at people as ripe for harvest? Do we look at the purpose that we're here secondarily is to involve more and more people so that they can know about Christ and become worshipers of him, which is your first and most important priority. Is that how we view life? Or do we get caught up in the do list and everything we got to get done so that we're more worried about cheeseburgers? That, that, that's what this passage is about. Open your eyes. Look around you. These fields are ripe for harvest. Talking with Dave this week, we're not experiencing what's happening in India. 80,000 people are, are coming to these crusades that uh, Dave and his son were part of. At the last night of the crusade, people ran down front for the invitation to become a follower of Christ. This is in a Hindu culture. 
We're not experiencing something like that. Oh, pray we would. That would be exciting. But I'm not doing three services. I don't know what we're doing, but I hate three services. But God, okay, never say never. Um, God is doing something, and their fields are white. For, is that the way we view people? Or do we view them as in our way, they cut me off from the freeway? By the way, why do you expect an unregenerate person to act like a regenerate one? The sooner we get used to the idea that unregenerate people are going to act like unregenerate people, great, right? They should cut you off because you're in their way. Thank you for acting consistent with who you are. That's what you should say to them. <laughs> the fields are white for harvest. They're... Now, I want to share you a little bit about uh, as a church, as, as, a, as a whole church, how do we want to view that? What's hope's desire to look at this harvest? And I want to share a vision with you. This is a vision that, that if I were to rewrite it, we'd have a couple word changes, but they'd say the exact same thing. The, the vision of Hope Community Church is to honor God, we probably change that to glorify, but honor God by helping as many people as possible become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. If I were to write it now, I'd say worshipers, but you understand the whole thing. Fully devoted followers, that's what we're about. We don't stray from this. And everything we do, is that what we're doing? Are we helping as many people as we can become followers of Jesus? Not just sign off that, yeah, I made a one-time decision for Christ. Mm-mm. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Fully devoted. And can you increase in that the rest of your days? We have two strategies to accomplish this here at the church. We want to do uh, creative, biblical, and spiritual and effective Ministry here in this, in this property and with other ministries that are associated with us at Hope, downtown, whatever you want to call it. This church, with a special emphasis on the University of Minnesota. From our, incent, our inception, we've had a desire to reach people from the University of Minnesota. If you're here this morning and you have, uh, you've never opened a Bible before in your life, you're not sure why you came here this morning, you came because Hope is designed to be a place where people who don't have a clue about the Bible, like myself as a freshman, it's designed to be that kind of place where you can ask questions in a safe environment. That's what we're trying to do. That's what we're trying to do. And secondly, we want to start new churches and new ministries all around the world and support those who are doing different things, but especially starting new churches. Now, that is a passion of mine. The overseers of this church have given me freedom to involve myself with church planting around the country and even some around the world, but mostly around the country. I, I probably spend between 5 and 10% of my time helping other churches get started. We also want to do it as a church. We want to start other churches. We want to start them all over the world. We're starting right here in, in Minneapolis, and we're, we're 10 years old, and we'll talk about our third one in just a minute. But you should be asking a question why do, should we start new churches? Why start new churches? I have two, and I we don't have time to get in all of them, but I want to share two things that resonate within myself and with the overseers of why to start new churches. First one is Matthew 16, 18. Peter just gives his declaration of who the Christ is, that you are the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And it's a big moment in the book of Matthew when that comes out. And then Jesus says to Peter, I tell you that you are Peter. It means rock. It's a, it's a play on words. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not overcome it. That means that Christ promises that his church is going to expand, and the gates of hell 
are not offensive, they're defensive, that this church is going to expand into Satan's territory and take over. That motivates us. Our little buzz phrase around here, if you've been around here long enough, is what can we do to go into the kingdom of darkness and trash the joint? Because that's our mandate. They're afraid of us, not the other way around. That's one. We think church planting is one of those ways. Second one is from Matthew 28, the last words to Jesus' disciples in, recorded in the book of Matthew. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, <coughs> they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Whew! That's awesome. After his resurrection, all authority. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. You see what the commands there are? Uh, uh, make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them. How do you do that? You do that in the context of community. Isn't a community of faith called a church? I don't care what you call it. I mean, some people call it parachurch, whatever. It's a, a, a local group of people who love the Lord and want to follow him and reach out to others, that's a church. Okay, I don't care if it's a Bible study that just grows or whatever. That's a church. So, why start new churches? That's the first thing. Let me give you some quotes on why to start new churches. Kent Hunter, who's, the, who's an author and a president of the Church Growth Center, said this. There are 195 million unchurched people making the U.S. the third largest mission field in the English-speaking world and the fifth largest globally. Did you hear that? We're the fifth largest mission field in the world. That includes countries that have hardly any Christian witness. 195 million unchurched people. Bob Logan, who is kind of a guru for church planting out of Fuller Seminary, says, Christianity has always been expanded through the multiplication of churches. The book of Acts records how the boundaries of the Christian faith were pushed to the outermost parts of the world through the multiplication of new churches. To this day, throughout every generation, Christianity has extended to new areas and new peoples via the multiplication of new churches. See, Peter Wagner, this was the quote that got me thinking about starting Hope. This quote, I read a book called uh, uh, Church Planning for a Greater Harvest by C. Peter Wagner. It's like in page five because I'm an ENFP and that's as far as we ever make it in any book, so I'm glad it was there. Uh, and, and, and it says this, I begin this book with a categorical statement that will seem bold and brash to some at first sight, even though it has been well substantiated by research over the past two or three decades. The single most effective evangelistic methodology under heaven is planting new churches. Not crusades where thousands come at one. No. Starting new churches reaches more people than any other strategy. And lastly, Ralph Winter, who is uh, the U.S. Center for World Missions founder. New churches worth their salt aren't parasites on existing churches. They reach believers who drop out of church years ago. They reach people who don't really know the Lord. They reach people who have never gone to Sunday school in their lives. They reach the lost. Now, you might be asking, well, that sounds like a great idea, you know, for churches outside the United States, but why should we start churches inside the United States? Aren't there enough churches here? It seems like, you know, you can't go but trip over another church building here in the United States, right? Oh, contraire. Um, look, at, look at his stat. In 1900, there were 28 churches for every 10,000 uh, Americans. 
1950, there were 17 churches for every 10,000 Americans. In 2000, there were 12 churches. And the last stat we had is from 2004. Now there's 11 churches. So if you do the math, the next one, there's 212,000 churches in 1900 in the United States. There was 349,506, I was up all night counting them, churches in 2000. But that's a 50% increase of churches while the population has increased 400, 400%. Again, the fields are ripe for harvest. 195 million unchurched people making it the third largest mission field and fifth overall mission field among English speaking. No county in the U.S., not one county in the U.S., has a higher percent of churched people than a decade ago. For every one church being started, there are three that close. There's the numbers there. 3,500 to 4,000 a year versus 1,100 to 1,500 at start. Oh, it seems like we're starting to... We are dying. Listen to these stats. These are uh, very troubling statistics. First of all, North, North America is the only continent on earth where Christianity is declining. Isn't that amazing? North America is the only continent on earth without a saturation church planting movement. We're, we're going down two for every one we start. We're minus two. 80% of Americans are unchurched, while 80% of churches that are existing are plateaued or declining. Only 20% of churches are growing. 50% of Americans attended church in 1958 compared to 37% in 1996. And what's happened, that's a generational shift. And it's basically, it follows this almost to a T. If you're 60 years old, you have a 60% chance of being at church. 50 years old, 50% chance. Right on down to 20-year-olds, 20% chance of being in church. Do you realize when people walk into this building and they see all of you, most of you are in your 20s and 30s. A few oldies like myself, 40s, 50s, 60s. They are blown away. They can, it's like, what is going on? All these young people. You are reversing a trend. The greatest opportunities are among urban America, ethnic America, young America, and postmodern America. And here's one of the amazing statistics. It's very, very true. All these stats come off reputable uh, sources. Churches under three years of age, churches under three, reach an average of 10 new unchurched people per hundred per year. Once a church gets older than three, and they're three to 15, they reach five per hundred. And once a church goes past that, they reach three. New churches reach, statistically, a ton more people. Now, so what has Hope tried to do in the past? When we started Hope Community Church, we put in our DNA from the beginning. We don't ever, we don't ever have had, never had a, a vision of how much we want to grow to. Whatever. That's fine. Obviously, we want to help as many people as possible become followers of Christ, but we're not into numbers here. In fact, we just soon keep starting other churches because we believe that uh, it's better to have 10 churches of 100 than one church of 1,000. Now, in 2002, 
we helped start, we hired a staff person, Pat Conkey, to come on full-time to start a church, St. Paul Fellowship. They meet over on uh, Victoria and basically Victorian University, one block past it. And they're a thriving young congregation. They're only, um, what does that make, about four years old right now. Be four years old this October. In 2004, we helped launch a, a postmodern, hip, now they even so hip they're calling themselves a missional order, not a church, but um, Missio Day in the Cedar Riverside area with Mark Van Steenwick. What's next? What's the next thing here at Hope? As we look at these fields of the, of, of, of the Twin Cities and they're white. They're, they're, they're ready to be harvested. They're ready to go with churches that are excited about Christ and want to share it with their neighbors and say, come on, it's, it's an okay place to be. Two things. First one, we have an interest in starting a church in East Asia. <laughs> They're sitting right over there. Jason and Krista and Eliana and Isaiah and Sarai, is that how you say it? Uh, that was a... Sariah. Sariah, sorry. Sariah are going to East Asia with the Evangelical Free Church of American Missions. And you're going to hear from them, when are you talking again? In two weeks. You're going to hear from them, and they're going to talk about uh, that whole effort that they're going to be a part of in another culture. Start, and that hopefully will start by this fall, or maybe shortly thereafter, or something. You know, life brings little expected surprises, like a, like a sneeze, and you know, all those kind of things. But we'll see. As soon as they can get over there, we want to help them do it. They're our first full-time uh, cross-cultural missionaries. And then, what else is next? Uh, we have another quote-unquote free building in the, in the works here. I know those of you know Hope, we know that we got this building totally free. Uh, I was, I'm the director of church planting for the uh, Minnesota Baptist Conference, and I was at a meeting, and I heard that a church was going out of business here in South Minneapolis. Minnehaha Baptist Church was going out of business. And I looked at one of the people from the mucky mucks up higher up, and I said, uh, what are you going to do with that building? Kind of one of Jesus' questions, because it was really a little bit more to it, like, give me it, give me, give me, give me. And they said, I don't know, do you want it? I said, yeah. <laughs> I said, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll guarantee, just me, personally, I can't speak yet for our church, but I will speak just for me, that within three years we'll try to start something else there. If you just kind of give us a break on the building. So in the works, I can't yet communicate all the, all the, 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 the details of the work, but in, in the works is that we would get a very inexpensive building uh, being given to us. And it looks like that. Isn't that purdy? Meet your new baby sister. <laughs> doesn't, even have, doesn't even have a name yet. That is our new baby sister. And hopefully by September, somebody help me out, first Sunday in September. Okay, first Sunday in September. Hopefully that will have a... a, a be launched and have its own worship service going on down there. We're doing something a little bit different with this. We're doing something we call multi-site approach with it. In other words, there'll be one staff, one budget, one uh, overseer team, one leadership team that this church will be, will be together. We'll call it the south site and, and the downtown site. And over time, it will go like this and it will become its own church. Because Lord knows the last thing I want is more to manage. So, the, it, but it's going to take time, so they don't have to worry about all the finances and all the other things that go with running a church. They can just go down there and be part of the ministry and try to reach out to that area. That area is uh, 40, if you know where the Riverview Theater is, 38th Street and 42nd Avenue, this is just 
four blocks south, three blocks south of there in the, in the Hiawatha and Howe area. Great area. I live over in that area, so it's a great area. And we're right now in the process of, of hiring staff, hopefully, for that uh, particular project and getting that all going. Now, a lot of information here today. How do you respond to all this? How do you respond? First thing, do you really believe that the harvest is ready and it's ripe for, 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 for harvest? That as you look out at the fields of people, do you really believe that there are people that Christ is preparing for them to become followers and worshipers of him? Or do you go there and you just see their icky stuff and say, ah, oh, they'd never be interested? Dude, if you would have known me as a not a follower of Christ, you'd have said, that guy is icky. That guy has no interest in spiritual things. But you don't know what's really going on in the recesses of my heart. You didn't know that, that for that whole year I feared death like I had never feared it before. You didn't know that was going on. You didn't know this little guy from Hibbing, Minnesota, every time he walked by Kaufman Union and the dudes would do at, at 1 o'clock on the first Wednesday of the month when the sirens go off, woo-woo, they do this thing called a die-in, paint their faces white, and you have to walk across bodies in order to get to Kaufman Union. Freaky! And I think, what? This is freaky. They don't do this in Hibbing. What are these people doing dying to protest nuclear war? Are we really going to have a nuclear war? Now, you guys don't care about nuclear war. You know, in the 80s, man, woo, it was big. Am I going to be a, you know, just toasted at 16,000 degrees Kelvin or whatever it is? What's going to happen? I fear death. You didn't know that. All you saw was a beer-drinking, cussing guy. Seemed happy-go-lucky. You don't know what's going on inside. You do not know what's going on inside your coworker, your neighbor, your, your friend. You don't know. You don't know what's going on inside this Samaritan woman. She's talking about water and she's living with a guy. Oh, she'll never want to hear about it. She already knows that the Christ is coming and she's waiting for it. You don't know what's going on. The fields are ripe for harvest. Jesus said it. You don't know what he's doing in their lives. It ain't about you and how persuasive you are. God is doing things in their lives. Do you believe that? First thing, do you believe that? Do I believe that? When I get next to somebody on the bus or on an airplane or whenever, when I get to know my neighbor, when I get to know my friend, do I believe that? That's the truth. Second thing, and as a church, and we're going to talk more about sometime in June, we're going to have an all-church meeting, probably right after worship, and just talk more about how, how are we going to do this in this new building? How's that all going to work? But our, will you start praying about giving your time, your talent, and your treasure? It's going to take all three of those. Whether or not you're a participant in being part of this project or just stay at the downtown site or whatever, all of us are going to have to, to belly up on this. Time, talent, and our treasure in order to make this thing happen so that more people can be like the Samaritan woman. And then she's going to, next week, Cora's going to talk about this. She's going to go tell a bunch of people. It's going to multiply like crazy. Will you consider that? The fields are ripe for harvest. Let's pray. Lord, we just ask for your hand in our lives that you would show us clearly those people that cross our path like the Samaritan woman that the fields are indeed ripe for harvest. Lord, as we come to a time now of communion and worship, we just ask that your hand would be upon us, that we would be taken aback by how great you are. And because of that, God, we want to we shout it from the rooftops how great you are.
I'm thankful there were people in my life who did want to shout that from the rooftops at me. And I pray that you'd grant that to us too, even as we worship this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.